I mean, history, as you know, has traditionally been written as national, as if it's all contained within the national state border. I mean, it's still so taken for granted that history is French history, German history, Australian history, American history, but you don't need to start to look very far before realising how completely transnational it was. Welcome to A History of Xenophobia, from the gold mines to the rise of the far right today. My name is Ariel Glynn and I'm the host of this History Hub podcast series. History Hub is based at the School of History at University College Dublin in Ireland. You can find a huge range of podcasts and videos showcasing historical research on our website, historyhub.ie. You can also follow us on various social media and if you want to get in contact with us about the series, please email info at historyhub.ie. Professor Marilyn Lake is Honorary Professorial Fellow in History at the University of Melbourne. Her most recent book, Progressive New Worlds, How Settler Colonialism and Trans-Pacific Exchange Shaped American Reform, was published by Harvard University Press, and we'll touch on this towards the end of the episode. Professor Lake's research interests are vast, and she's written and edited books on a wide variety of subjects, ranging from Australian labour history to land settlement the history of feminism, the politics of anti-racism, as well as the intersection of race, gender and imperialism in global and transnational history. We will focus in particular today on her book entitled Drawing the Global Colour Line, White Men's Countries and the International Challenge of Racial Equality, which she co-wrote with Henry Reynolds and which was published by Cambridge University Press. It won numerous prizes, including the Australian Prime Minister's Prize for Nonfiction. It's a fantastic book and my students and I draw on it extensively for classes that we have about the reaction of white settler colonies such as Australia, New Zealand, Canada, United States and South Africa and their reaction to Chinese and Indian immigrants in the late 19th century and early 20th centuries. So Marilyn, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me today. Your book, Drawing the Global Colour Line, starts by discussing the famous African-American scholar and activist W.E.B. Du Bois's work. So in 1910, Du Bois published an article called The Souls of White Folk, where he discussed colour consciousness and what he termed the discovery of personal whiteness among the world's people. While most people have related Du Bois' work to the US, you and Henry Reynolds highlighted the global dimension of the colour line and argued that the assertion of whiteness was born in the apprehension of sudden loss. Could you tell us a bit about how Du Bois inspired you both and about why white people in settler colonies were so fearful? We were really taken with Du Bois's work um, in the United States. But the thing about Du Bois is that he himself was a real global scholar. He understood the, the movements in the world around 1900 as involving geopolitical uh, forces worldwide. So he always spoke about the Pacific, about what was happening in Asia and, of course, Africa. And towards the end of his life, he goes back to Africa. So... It was interesting to us that as a contemporary, you know, someone living around then, that it was really clear to him that these assertions of whiteness and the fact that he used that term whiteness um, were occurring everywhere. You know, he says something about you, you wake up and you look up and everywhere people are declaring that um, we are white and that is wonderful. And so he then goes on to analyse what is it about this whiteness, what is it about this thing that people are so eager to claim and he ties it into the aim of white men to have ownership of the earth forever and ever. Amen, he says. 
Um, and that, of course, tied in very neatly to what we'd been looking at um, for this global colour line, which was being drawn across places I start to think of as all the A places, like Africa, South Africa, North America, um, Australia, Australasia, that was being drawn in response to the great migrations um, from the Chinese Empire in the 19th century um, and um, Indian migration as well in various places and particularly in South Africa. Um, so it seemed to us that it was really useful. Du Bois's work was really useful in thinking about this happening simultaneously. And we were particularly struck by his identification of whiteness as this formation and that it was both a sort of transnational formation but also a personal subjective formation that people started to identify as white. Yeah, what was it that these uh, white people, especially in settler states at the time, were, were so afraid of? Well, yes, it's important, first of all, that all of these places were settler colonies became settler societies. What's really important about that is their three-way relationship. Um, on the one hand, they relate to the metropolis, um, to London, for example. They're settlers, um, but they also relate to Indigenous peoples whom they're dispossessing. So in the 19th century in particular, they're very conscious of being in Australasia. And also, I guess, in the United States, but, you know, as they go across, you know, to California, where now California is seen, um, you know, as a site of genocide um, in the, you know, 1840s, 1850s, whatever. On the one hand, settler colonists, um, white settlers, were conscious that they were invading and dispossessing other peoples and that in a way, therefore, you know, a lot of their energy is is spent on possessing the new place that they're in, possessing it, um, you know, literally, um, materially, but also imaginatively, in fact, um, recasting themselves as natives. To go to that term nativism, um, in Australia there's a new organisation is formed in the 1870s or thereabouts called the Australian Natives Association, and, you know, historians have found this extremely ironic um, but they're, because they're white settlers. Um, but it's a very it's a very significant claim, you know, that, that they are the new natives. And, and this is done in the 1870s, even as Indigenous peoples are still everywhere and in some places don't even recognise the British are in Australia and speak their own languages and maintain their own culture. Um, and keep up their own ceremonies. And meanwhile, in the southeast of the continent, there's this new organisation called the Australian Natives Association um, as a claim to possession. So I guess when they are confronted with a new wave of um, visually different peoples, I mean, the thing about Chinese, I think the important thing is that they're so visually different and so they can be identified as foreign and alien and as a threat, whereas, in fact, um, on the goldfields of Victoria in the 1850s, as every historian has noted, they were polyglot societies. They were really multicultural. They had people from, you know, most nations in the world, so they were very heterogeneous. 
but it was the Chinese who were able to be identified as a threatening alien presence. I mean, once they were identified then, and you could argue subsequently, you know, a whole lot of um, offensive um, attributes were attached to them, you know, not, not least increasingly that they clung together, <laughs> which you would cling together if you started to be increasingly, you know, attacked. Um, so what was um, threatening about them? What was threatening about them was that they were coming in in quite large numbers. That was important, I think, that... Um, that sense that with the Chinese that they keep coming and coming, that there are large numbers and that where they come from, you know, there are many millions more. One key fact, in quote marks, that grabs people's imagination in the Australian colonies and everywhere else, no doubt, by the 1880s or so, is that the, because of, the, of, of nation states conducting censuses, having a census and counting populations, the word gets around that the Chinese nation is 400 million strong. And this is an alarming fact. So when Chinese miners and others turn up, they are seen to be, you know, just the beginning of a potential tidal wave, as in they, and commentators often use that expression of being swamped. Um, Yes, and then related to that, and, and, and it, it will become an increasing concern, um, is questions around labour and standard of living. I mean, but they, they come a bit later, as it were. They, particularly when a lot of Chinese miners give up on the goldfields and go and work in manufacturing in Melbourne, um, as they do in California. When, when the Chinese enter local industries, and Chinese employers pay lower wages, et cetera, and they have lesser living conditions and diets, you know, all that stuff about their rice-eating men and not beef-eating men in, bo in both uh, California and Victoria. Um, Labour standards become increasingly a focus because it, this coincides with the rise of labour movements internationally, the rise of trade unions, the ascendancy of the working man as a political figure. That probably raises something that I, I think is, is often uh, related, especially to historical nativism, is you know the, the question of the left. So today the left is often associated with being more pro progressive on these kind of issues. But if you look back to the 19th century, it, it was uh, much more complicated. And that, you know, a lot of these um, a lot of the opposition and hostility towards, let's say, Chinese miners in Victoria um, came from the bottom up, came from workers, uh, miners who were competing with these others. Um, but it was also influenced by some uh, major thinkers and writers who, who you quote extensively in uh, drawing the, the global color line, you know, that it was, it was um, coming from uh, many different locations, this hostility. Um, Maybe, you know, because your book and your more recent book uh, highlight the transnational element of uh, these kind of sentiments, you, you could maybe link, uh, make the link between what happened in San Francisco in 1849 and then what happened in Victoria in 1851 and how the two influenced each other. Yes, indeed. Um, we were struck by the fact that... Um, 
life and politics were so transnational. I mean, history, as you know, has traditionally been written as national, as if it's all contained within the national national state border. It's just crazy when you think about it now. I mean, it's still so taken for granted that history is French history, German history, Australian history, American history, but in fact, you don't need to start to look very far before realising how completely transnational it was. So from the late 1840s into the 1850s and then, you know, right through the last decades of the 19th century, um, commentators um, in both uh, San Francisco and Melbourne, for example, writers and newspapers and politicians and legislators look backwards and forwards to each other all the time. So... I mean, there was actual migration, of course. Um, a lot of Australians went across the Pacific to go to the Californian gold rushes. And then when gold was discovered in Victoria in 1851, a lot rushed back. And then when trouble starts on the gold fields in Victoria um, and trouble, I mean, it's trouble not just against the Chinese, but when there's sort of lawlessness in general, as you would expect on gold fields, or when there's anti-government protest, um, it's often remarked that guns are used much more than they usually would be in Victoria, that, um, and then that's attributed to the lawlessness of those who've come from California, that they always carry guns. Um, but this um, comparison and solidarity across the Pacific is really, really strong. You know, each place looks to the other in terms of what they're doing and what they can do. Um, Californians are really annoyed that um, they can't pass laws themselves because they're just a state of the union and that they have to wait for the US Congress to enact um, restriction law, immigration restriction laws, and they're really annoyed that a British colony, you know, a self-governing British colony can do this by itself. So Victoria passes the first immigration, <laughs> it has the honour of passing the first Immigration Restriction Act in the world, I think, in 1855, which is its first effort to restrict Chinese migration. It's then repealed under pressure from the British because the British's main investment is in all of these international treaties that it's entered into with um, other powers, including China, um, and those treaties promise reciprocity of travel and movement. Um, so the British are sort of constantly trying to um, pressure the colonies, you know, to tone down their anti-Chinese and then later anti-Japanese uh, rhetoric in favour of sort of more harmonious international relations. Um, but, yeah, so what you said, though, is that uh, it's true that the discourse on self-government or sort of Republican discourse on self-government um, that is that sovereign white men can do what they want, um, is the basis of a sort of solidarity across the Pacific um, because they both groups of white men in um, Melbourne and in San Francisco speak that language, you know. We are self-governing white men. And, and can, can you tell us a bit about the dynamic between, let's say, these intellectuals or these scholars, these commentators, and, and then normal miners you know, was were they both informing each other? Was more, one more prevalent in explaining this hostility than the other, or is it just so complicated that it's hard to put a finger on? Well, it's it's all um, interactive, of course. Um, 
I mean, one key figure in Victoria is Charles Pearson. He's a very interesting figure because he himself is a migrant, um, but he's an English migrant and he's a professor of history. He taught history at King's College and at Cambridge, um, but he was looking for grander things, so he migrated twice actually to the Australian colonies, first to South Australia and then to Victoria, and he had a job at the University of Melbourne um, as a lecturer in history and politics. He was obviously restless, as I said, to... Uh, do great things. And so he decides to stand for Parliament. So he becomes um, a member and um, a member of the Legislative Assembly in Victoria in 1878. So he's, I mean, when you think about it, um, politicians like that, you know, mediate, um, you know, this is manhood suffrage too. Another really important thing, I think, um, for us to remember, both in California and in Victoria, Men enjoy manhood suffrage. I mean, unlike in Britain, unlike in Britain completely. I mean, Britain doesn't even get anywhere near that, does it, until after World War I or something. I often shock students by saying, do you know in Britain they had to go and fight in World War I and they couldn't even vote? Um, this is deeply shocking. So um, they have manhood suffrage. So when politicians like um, Charles Pearson, they respond to their electorates. He's the member for Castlemaine, which is a Goldfields electorate. And so he has, you know, his ear to the ground. He knows what's going on. Um, And interestingly, you know, he changes from being uh, a liberal, what he calls a a liberal of the old-fashioned type, an English liberal, um, to uh, a radical nationalist, really. So he buys into a whole lot of policies. or he, He wants to build a society, he says, along the lines of equality. That's his key thing. So he buys into a whole lot of things like land reform and he's a minister for education um, he's a feminist, he's for women's rights. Um, and this program, you know, convinces him and many, many others like him um, that they are building this new democratic, progressive, advanced democracy. And they can't have Chinese um, coming in because they um, are understood to be coolies. And May Nye writes, interestingly, about this, and, and actually in her new book, I don't know whether you've seen her new book, it's, it's the global history of Chinese migration. Um, and one of her arguments, um, I give it an endorsement, so <laughs> I know it well. One of her arguments, and it's a really good argument, is that she, what she calls the ideology of coolism um, dominates this um, hostility to Chinese migration. Um, because coolies, you know, are seen as cheap labour, they don't have any workers' rights, they're exploitable. And so radical nationalists like Pearson think, well, you can't build this new society along the lines of equality where the working man is upstanding um, if you have this these coolies, this cheap labour coming in and undermining all of those standards. So you just put up, um, as, as the Californians say, the Chinese must go, so you just put up a border and keep them out. So... Yes, these things are all intertwined. They're in democratic societies. They're, they have manhood suffrage. Um, and that's why the term white man is also really significant because white man is a classless figure. So being a white man can include people of any class, men of any class. Um, so that's why it's a sort of quite useful figure as well for mobilising both, you know, in California and in Victoria. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I know uh, a student of mine did a thesis um, a few years ago about 
um, in the early 20th century, in the second internationalist, they were having meetings about immigration and uh, in uh, Stuttgart and I think in Amsterdam, and they were trying to express their hostility to racism, but then um, they they also want to defend themselves against this so-called coolism. Yes. And the, but the problem was that often it would transcend, let's say, um, defensiveness based on um, working conditions and competitions with certain workers into very much, um, you know, full-blown racism. Yeah. Uh, quite quickly. But, um, I mean, I think this is what this is the com- complexity of this subject. Really, um, is that you know these days we tend quite readily to sort of jump to racism as the explanation. You know, that of course they're racist. Um, but what's more interesting, in a way, and far more complicated, is to try and understand. This was the same time, radically, where you get the first radical workers' rights being um, legislated, enacted, which will soon go into the international code in the ILO. One one of the articles I wrote um, about this, uh, which I'd really recommend your students um, read, is um, about the first legal minimum wage which in the world, which was enacted in Victoria, interestingly, in 1896. In 1896, Victoria, which was, as we said, you know, a self-governing colony um, based on manhood suffrage, Victoria passed the first legal minimum wage in the world. I mean, this was amazing. And it's very, and in this article, I insist that you can only see the significance of this in world history terms. And one of the, it's in, actually in a special issue of a journal on slavery, because one of the really important things, again, we have to realise about the 19th century is the 19th century was there was still slavery, you know, uh, in you know that that slavery is the background here, the condition of slavery, and slavery permeates the discourse of those who don't want to be slaves, and so in this new minimum wage legislation in 1896, it's all about driving out what they call um, slave driving employers or slave conditions. That they juxtapose free working men with a legal guaranteed minimum wage in an eight-hour day. They justify just they they justify that figure in terms of his opposite, who is considered to be the slave. And then there's the intervening figure historically between slavery and the abolition of slavery comes indentured labour, and the prevalence of indentured labour across the world. And, you know, particularly the British Empire uses indentured labour all the time, which is, you know, where a lot of studies of Indian migration um, fit in. To the Caribbean and to Fiji, for example, Um, they come as indentured labour. And indentured labour, you know, it's a a sort of in-between state, really, between slavery and and free workers. And that's in a way where the figure of the coolie comes in. So... We have to see all these things together historically. I mean, in the in the in the historic in the memory of people, in the memory of these people enacting this radical legislation, um, it's the history of slavery and the history of indentured labour. And so it's really radical to pass this legislation. And um it becomes a real focus for progressives in the United States. 
um, for all their labour movement activists and for people like Walter Lippmann, and I write about this in my new book, Progressive New World, there they are in New York studying the detail of this legislation in Victoria, you know, and they look at all the detail and they then, then they study all the factory reports that come afterwards and note whether it's working, you know, and note whether the factories are all leaving Victoria as a result, you know, and they, and so this, this happens all together and it's really important to see these things in relation to, to each other, yeah. And th- this is really fascinating and I think enlightening for, for many people listening, but this ideology of Cooleyism that you refer mm. to, um, I think May Nye and, and you and Henry Reynolds do an excellent job of trying to, sh- to challenge this idea of mm. Cooleyism by showing yes. how diverse the Chinese community was. Yes, exactly. And that's why it's really important in histories of migration in the 19th century to see Chinese migration as part of the great history of migration. Um, I think we quote in Drawing the Global Colour Line Patrick Manning's work, and he says something, you know, over five decades or something in the 19th century, he said there were 50 million European migrants across the world, and there were 50 million Chinese migrants across the world. And interestingly, mainly often because the Chinese migrants went into Southeast Asia or, or into the Pacific or into Australasia or into America, they're often not seen by European historians. I mean, often European historians, I think, when they think about migration, of course, not surprisingly, I mean, they think about Europe and that maybe they think about Africa as being adjacent or something, or the Middle East. Um, but a lot of Chinese migration goes into the Strait Settlements, for example. And, in fact, one of the things um, that we highlight in drawing the global colour line is the history of Singapore, which quite suddenly in the 19th century becomes a Chinese settler colony um, because it used to be a, Mal- a Malayan place. with na- Natives were Malays. Um, once when I was, I was doing, I did a lot of work, research in Singapore and, and at the university there and I asked some local historians why the local Chinese places like the Raffles Hotel, it's hardly surprising, seemed so deferential to the British. Um, and they replied sort of jokingly, they replied, oh, because the British got rid of the Malays, stupid, <laughs> meaning that they enabled Singapore to become a Chinese settler colony. And this is what, like, Australians looked to the north and could see this. Um, this is what people who knew this area knew. So Chinese migration was indeed um, hugely diverse. The migration to Australia, Australasia, meaning including New Zealand, and North America was all free voluntary migration. They weren't coolies. They weren't indentured labour. I mean, there was some indentured labour, I think, with railroads in the United States. But all the Chinese migration to Australia anyway was completely free voluntary migration. And that meant we start our book with Lo Kong Meng, who was a merchant uh, who owned his fleet of six ships, who traded, he was only 22, um, and he joined other merchants in Melbourne. And what a lot of people, including my own students when I taught this, what a lot of people um, don't realise is that the, the Chinese um, in Melbourne were, there's a you know, huge um, merchant group. Um, they were often not just bilingual but trilingual. Lo Kong Ming you know, speaks French and English as well as um, Chinese. Um, they were very middle class. They were literate. Um, and these were the people, this is one reason why we like to stress all of the stuff they wrote, 
these were the people who wrote all of the booklets and the petitions and the remonstrances. They were extremely literate in their protest. You mentioned before we started recording Adam McKeown's book, Melancholy Order, and, and you talk about how in many ways this expression of national sovereignty that we see in Australia and the United States uh, is very much linked to the establishment of border control and, and, and it very much begins with Chinese migration, this global Chinese migration taking place. Um, it's, it's just um, a fascinating period in that sense. And you, you also talk um, with, you, you said at the start that you wanted to look at the history of encounters, you know, that very much this history of nativism is, um, you know, focuses on, on the people carrying out this kind of nativism. Um, let's say the white settlers in Australia, in um, San Francisco, in South Africa, um, and doesn't give enough agency to those who are challenged with this, like um, some of the Chinese you mentioned. So, so how did the Chinese in Victoria, in New South Wales, how did they um, react to the, the xenophobia that they were encountering? Who did they speak to? You know, where was China in this? Where was London yes, in this? Yes. No, I think it's really useful now to think about um, Chinese in this, in say Victoria and New South Wales um, in the 19th century as um, coming into encounter, encounters with British, the subjects of the British Empire meet the subjects of the Chinese Empire. These are two lots of imperial subjects we have to remember. Um, and they encounter each other on the Australian continent, which is actually being taken off Indigenous Australians. I mean, these are really dynamic people movements, um, tragic people movements. And so I think that's a much more in a way productive way to think about these people who are foreign to each other, the subjects of the British Empire, and they encounter subjects of the Chinese Empire and engage and interact all the time. So um, when I was doing this research in Australia, I was very excited, of course, to find all of this writing by Chinese protesters, um, particularly the book uh, published by uh, Lo Kong Meng and his co-authors, I think in 1878, 79, uh, called The Chinese Question in Australia. Um, and it's such a fabulous book to read. It's full of references to um, Jefferson, to um, Christianity, to Confucius, to um, Emmanuel de Battelle and international law. They draw on a, a range of references across the world to justify their settlement in Australia. And they also invoke, which I became very interested in, they invoke against radical nationalist nativism, if you like, they invoke the idea of cosmopolitanism, which I think is a really interesting thing, that against this sort of um, racial nationalism and emphasis on keeping people out of borders, they invoke what they call, they use the term, the spirit of cosmopolitan friendship and sympathy. They imagine what will take about 100 years to happen, and that is what we now think of as multiculturalism. They imagine that a new nation state can be multicultural, that multiculturalism should be at its heart. 
And so they keep invoking this spirit of cosmopolitanism in response to these nationalist, racist assertions of national control by these self-governing colonists. Um, so the two, this is really essential. You can't understand the movement for self-government and for national sovereignty and for borders without also understanding the arrival of all these Chinese migrants who are asserting their right to be in these places and in doing that invoke quite a different understanding of national belonging. It's an understanding of national belonging in which, um, as I said, it's cosmopolitan. And um, Adam McEwan actually phrases it nicely when he says they asserted that they could live both here and there you know, that they didn't just have to reside in one place. They indeed thought they did live. They did live both here and there. They lived in China and often went back to China and they lived in Victoria. And one of the things that's really interesting as well, you know, it's well known that they often had kept families or wives or families, you know, back in China and, and would have filial visits to China and that all rested on the assumption of freedom of movement. You know, when they first sort of turn up in Victoria in the 1850s and 1860s, it's in an era of international treaties and an assumption of freedom of movement. And so they assume that they can live both here and there in a way that we do now in our world, <laughs> except we're now all closed down and in lockdown. But prior to COVID, you know, there was an assumption that people could live here and there, that they could travel the world. Well, so that was the case in the 1850s um, until those asserting Republican rights of self-government um, started to put up the borders. Yeah, I, I just have a quote from that document you mentioned, because, you know, these people who are giving out and stigmatizing us, uh, they, quote, know nothing of China, its moral, intellectual and social life, and they form hasty judgments and certain violent prejudice against its people from very slight acquaintance with immigrants. And then uh, the document later goes on to say, you know, man for man, we unhesitatingly assert that our countrymen will favor, will compare favorably with any European people in morals and manners. This really highlights their agency, you know, that they were competing on, on kind of similar terms and saying yeah. we, we, we are the same, are better we are just than as, Yes, we are just as civilized as you. I mean, in fact, we're more civilized than you if you looked at, you know, um, white miners. Um, you know, and they constantly referred to their antiquity, to their classical civilization, to their invention of the art of printing. Um, and actually, you know, it's really interesting, isn't it, that they, they knew where they came from. They knew they had this history of civilization behind them. And in a way, they were, they were and that uh, booklet, The Chinese Question, expresses their, their, they're perplexed, you know, they're saying, what are you saying all these things for? You don't know anything about China. You don't know anything about us. And they make the point that the British were still, what do they say, they were barbarians back when the Chinese were fully civilised. So, um, yes, they're asserting their own rights. They have a real sense of rights and entitlement. That's also the um, thing that can go wrong really with studies that just paint them as victims of, of racism and whatever is that it misses their own sense of themselves as um as having entitlement having rights and in fact one of the really interesting things i found doing this research in the big remonstrance that 44 of them wrote 
Um, they wrote it to the visiting Chinese imperial commissioners. This also tells us about how important, you know, their place in the world was. Um, they visited Melbourne in 1887 and, and had a lavish welcome. You know, they were given the state carriage, they stayed in the best hotels. And so local Chinese communities wrote this thing called a remonstrance that had 44 people sign it. And in that, amongst other places, they said that people should recognise their common human rights. I was really struck. They used that phrase. And I've often said in the context of Australian history, this is surely the first time in Australian history, in Australian political history, that there have been claims of common human rights. That language, that discourse was just not used in Australia, you know, for a long time. I mean, we think of claims about human rights as being associated with the United Nations or something, but, um, you know, they use, they use this phrase to claim their own position, that they have common human rights. Now, this, of course, goes completely contrary to the self-governing white men who say, no, 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 you know, this place is for self-governing white men and you have no place here, we, you know. So th there's a sort of conflict between two different worldviews and two different sets of political claims. They're political claims. Your work with Henry Reynolds on South Africa also highlights yes. how Gandhi yeah. and other Indians yeah. in, in Natal in South Africa are also looking, maybe not directly yeah. to human rights, but to the law to try yes, and help yes. them out, and also to London, you know, that this yes, should yes. be the kind of protector. But the, yes. the issue is that London is is, is sympathising with these uh, white men's countries. You know, they say, well, you know, we, we shouldn't discriminate against British <laughs> subjects, but of yes. course we understand your plight. So yes. they seem to be in favour of these kinds of fudges. And, yes. you, you know, like you, you talk about how they... Um, associate uh, numbers of immigrants with tonnage on ships and make yes. all these kind of rules to yes 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 um, and then they're also in favor and you don't make you don't make discrimination explicit the British would prefer yeah and and this Natal dictation test is is also an example of this and and you know I remember uh, earlier in the podcast you were saying how. The Californians were looking on enviously at the Victorians and how they were able to, you know, assert their their, their uh, immigration restrictions themselves. And it strikes me as something that the Australian colonies and Australia from 1901 does, that it, it borrows and learns from places in North America, in South Africa, yeah. and then yeah. puts its own kind of Australian or Australian colonial stamp on it. And, and yes. it's quite... It's quite innovative in that respect. And, but you've written a fascinating chapter about the Natal dictation test and how it, it um, the global aspect and transnational aspect of it, how it came from the American South yes. to Australia via Natal. So maybe yes. you could give a, a quick summary, if possible. Yes, I know yes. it's a I, complicated I, I, issue. Actually, I, I tried to find that book before this interview and couldn't find it because I wanted to refresh my memory of the detail. But, um, yes, I was struck by the fact um, that in the United States, which um, had its problem as it saw it, as its white master saw it, of um, multiracial democracy and the South and what to do about manhood suffrage in the South and how to disenfranchise black voters, but without doing so, they weren't allowed to do so explicitly on the grounds of race. 
um, so they came up with all of these ways of doing it indirectly. One was, by the way, um, introducing, again, following Australia, the secret ballot, which is really striking that, uh, you know, what seems to be a straightforward democratic advance, the secret ballot, became in the United States a key weapon against black voters um, across the South particularly, but also in the North, um, because the thing about the secret ballot, unlike putting your hand up or having a show of hands or shouting or something, the secret ballot required you to be able to read and write, to be able to write something down, um, you know, in the ballot box. Um, and, and it required literacy of some sort. And so they used, which is really interesting, so they used, and thus it was a sort of a modern device, the secret ballot, so they used this deliberately to disenfranchise black voters. Now, the other thing they did, because the secret ballots introduced in, in the Australian colonies in the 1850s, um, the other thing they did to, was to find out another indirect way of disenfranchising disenfranchising black voters, again using literacy, was various modes of getting them to test their literally, I mean, to um, either, you know, people would read out a section of the Constitution or something or get them to read a section of the Constitution. They would test them on comprehension tests on the con on, on the Constitution. And all of these things were using the fact of illiteracy to say they couldn't vote. So when and the first one was in Mississippi, and I was reading, then I was reading the debates, the parliamentary debates in Natal about excluding Indians, and I was really struck by the fact that they made explicit reference to Mississippi. And, of course, actually there were lots of parallels, you know, with apartheid and segregation between um, South Africa and the South United States, as the um, historian and statesman um, Bryce pointed out in his book he wrote in the late 19th century. He did a book comparing um, racial segregation in both places. Um, so it wasn't in a way surprising, you know, that they looked to the south of the United States. So in Natal, anyway, they make explicit reference to what they'd done in Mississippi and then they employ, and I can't remember the details now, but they employ some version of a literacy test or a dictation test um, in Natal, and then, that's right, and then in the Australian colonies, I think it's actually, um, they either Australians notice themselves, but also I think it's someone like Chamberlain or some sort of British statesman who then says to the Australians, we don't want you, you know, being offensive by explicitly discriminating against people, but you can do it in, you know, why don't you follow the Natal example? And so the Natal example was always held up. Um, as a way to discriminate but not but pretend you weren't, um, and Australia introduces the famous dictation test, which is another literacy test. And so a dictation test, I think, was to read out a passage of 50 words in um, the customs officer could choose the language. Uh, it had to be a European language, and so the joke was they often used uh, Gaelic, for example, on anyone. Um, and then they excluded people by that means. There was a lot of interesting debate in the department about the dictation test, that is, whether it should be in English, but they didn't want to offend um, nice Europeans like French and Germans. <laughs> so um, they thought, no, let's have it in a European language, which gave a lot of um, discretion to the customs officers. Um, so, so, yes, these examples, um, these um, 
technologies of exclusion, as I called them somewhere, I think, um, were used around these white men's countries, um, even though it was well known South Africa was not a white man's country, <laughs> but, you know, it had pretenses. So they were used around these places as ways to exclude without saying you were doing so. Yeah, and, and it very much um, links to this, uh, the, the fear that you expressed at the start that, you know, in the United States and the South, they're afraid of, of black voters being enfranchised. Yeah. In South Africa, they're afraid yes. that Indians are going to outnumber white yes. settlers. And in Australia, they're also, as you said, afraid of the 400 million and all these other Chinese migrants in between. Um, yes, the sense of loss as well. Um, and by the way, the other thing um, about the literacy test or dictation test, which is really important, I think, is that it's central to modernity. That is that, you know, the, the way in which these modern democracies saw themselves as in the advance, you know, of progress, um, literacy, of course, was crucial to that in the 19th century. Um, and, you know, for example, schooling in Victoria became free, compulsory and secular, as they put it. So literacy itself became a sort of sign, a badge of modernity. Yeah, and but it, it had to be European literacy because, <laughs> you know, in South Africa, the, it turns out that a lot of the Indians who are coming yes. are, are very literate, but in, yes. you know, in Hindi yes. or Bengali or yes, whatever. So they, have to, yes. they have to change yes. it. Then. But yes, literacy in European languages. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for this kind of whirlwind, Marilyn, of uh, late 19th century um, settler societies. Um, but I wanted to end with um, your latest book, Progressive New World. And, you know, you mentioned when we were speaking off air that it was intimately related to drawing the colour line. Um, so maybe you could, you could tell us how it, it kind of um, recasts what you've written and, and what it adds to this already. Yes, well, as we were working on drawing the global colour line and thinking about it and researching it, um, it sort of became clear that the book was as much about how they imagined these new democracies they were creating as it was about excluding others. Um, it was about asserting the values of democracy against, say, the values of aristocracy. Because one of the things about... Um, Chinese subjects and British subjects in Australia, they were both um, imperial subjects. They were both groups of imperial subjects. And the Australian self-governing white men, just like their peers in California, did not want to be imperial subjects. You know, they saw their status as being about self-governing white men. They, they didn't want to defer to imperial commissioners or whatever, whether they came from Britain or China. So we thought a lot about how they imagined themselves to be, what they were creating, and I just referred to that Education Act in 1874. There was so much legislation, particularly in Victoria, which liked to see itself as very particularly advanced, of the democratic kind, I mean, like the minimum first minimum wage in 1896, um, that, as Pearson put it, they wanted to build a society along the lines of equality, um, you know, gender equality and class equality. Um, so. I thought a lot about that and, and you know, what that meant. And I wanted to tie that to, to the condition of being a settler colony, settler societies. And I thought, that, thought, thought about that much more deeply and 
came to see and find, you know, people saying this in the research, that, um, I mean, they were aware that they had dispossessed people, that they were taking other people's, other nations' land. But although Pearson, interestingly, in his book National Life and Character, he refers to Indigenous Australians and, and all Native peoples as effinescent peoples, that they're just, you know, here and fading away, they'll be gone. Um, and this, this is preordained, you know, that, that, that it's sad, but, you know, they won't be here. But they were deeply conscious of um, that they'd taken this country from other people and the other people remained, I mean, Indigenous people remained all around them. Um, so in a way they started to theorise this new world as uh, a vindication. Yes, it was it, the new world they were creating, which was like radically new democratically, as I said, manhood suffrage and then women, womanhood suffrage. They, this was a vindication of their taking this country, that they were going to build this brand new world. Um, and so I start Progressive New World with concepts like um, they were building a new community, it was a new land, they were a new society, and with a conversation between Alfred Deakin, who was one of Australia's leading liberal, um, he was a, a politician, but he was a sort of deeply intellectual person, um, and he he formed a really close friendship with um, um, Josiah Royce, who was a Harvard philosopher. Um, in fact, I found when I looked into it that all of these leading liberal, radical liberals um, in Australia at this period all had a special friend who was a Harvard professor. <laughs> it was quite funny, but it's true. So that meant there's a lot of correspondence between them I could draw on. Um, Deacon's friendship was, was with um, Josiah Royce, and he was a philosopher, and he came to Australia in 1888, and they became deep friends and then continued in touch. Um, and so, again, this is this sort of um, at a subjective individual level, this sense of mutual kinship. The, the mutual solidarity that they were building new worlds together. There's so much sort of discussion about that. So um, the the title is Progressive New World because both, of course, both the United States and the Australian colonies thought they were building a progressive new world. Um, and then the subtitle is how um, settler colonialism, so I explore settler colonialism is much more central to um you know, the American national story than many American historians like to think. Um, so I explore that in the United States as well and how trans-Pacific exchange shaped American reform. So the book actually becomes moves, becomes a work of American history. It's about the American progressive movement. And I was, I was quite astonished by the amount of, um, of course, I guess it's because they wrote letters, the amount of... Um, documentation um, of this ex exchanges over things like the welfare state, about maternal infant rights, about childhood welfare, about labour reform, uh, you know, tonnes and tonnes of it that was all about, you know, this project of building a new world. So, And is the assumption that they can't have all these uh, progressive uh, aims if they also have immigration from well, it, well, and it's, non European also, countries. Yeah, and it's taken for granted, of course, that they're Anglo Saxon. Anglo Saxon is a key term here, actually. Anglo Saxons are by definition progressive. But, um, and indeed, they have a history, but, you know, I'm sort of looking at the 1900, 1910, 1920, they have a history of Chinese exclusion, both countries. 
Um, but but also what I do in the book, which was fascinating, because uh, it's about settler colonialism, I look at the way that in both Australia and the United States, Indigenous progressives, the last chapter is about pro, uh, Indigenous progressivism and the way that Indigenous progressive organisations, um, both in the United States, one is an organisation called the Society of American Indians. It was formed about 1911 by Charles Eastman, amongst others. And there's an organisation in Australia, interestingly, called the um, Aboriginal Australian Progressive Association. They sort of adopt that term. And I look at the ways that they both um, draw on that progress, progressive discourse and politics, but also, of course, profoundly critique it because at the heart of their critique, um, is, you know, the destruction of settler colonialism for their cultures and communities and uh, civilization. you know. So it's a very, it's very interesting how they cast themselves as modern and progressive in Indigenous politics, but at the same time they offer, in a way, I think the first sustained critique of the racial basis of progressivism, which is really what the book's about. Um, and I look at the ways in which Indigenous activists in both countries develop a politics of self-determination um, that cuts right across, um, you know, the progressive nation. So, um, and I see that as, in both countries, one of the first moves towards what we could call multiculturalism, that is that, that uh, to be advanced, a democracy has to also be, you know, multinational or multicultural or whatever. It, it can't insist on racial homogeneity. So I see Indigenous groups um, as, you know, amongst the first to start offering critiques of that racial homogeneity. Okay. Wow. Sounds really interesting. <laughs> and Marilyn, thanks so much for taking time out of I'm, what I know is a very busy schedule, but I think you've enlightened uh, a lot of people with um, your thoughts today. And I, I think what I've taken away from it, especially is the global nature and transnational nature of, of what was going on rather than you know, a lot of us are guilty, including me very much, of, of focusing too much on national case studies. And you show how interlinked this all is and, you know, that different people in different areas are facing similar issues and they're corresponding with each other, they're learning from each other, and it's very much a global phenomenon. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's been great to talk. huge range of podcasts and videos showcasing historical research on our website historyhub.ie you can also follow us on various social media and if you want to get in contact with us about the series please email info at historyhub.ie